Morning. Um, do please keep your Bibles open. I'm aware as we come to this passage, and I've been struck this week um, by a couple of things. One is that there is a lot of stuff in here, lots of incredible verses. This is a sort of a, a chapter for motivational posters. Um, and the other thing that I've been aware of as well is that, that the stuff in here is hard for some of us. And so it's been my prayer this week, if I'm honest, not that we would all get everything, but that each of us would make baby steps in understanding, comprehending, and living out these truths in Philippians 4. So let me pray for us, and then we'll see what God is saying through his words. Lord, we thank you for all that you have been teaching us as a people, as a community these last few weeks. Thank you for the way in which we've been able to see something of what it means to have joy despite the mess of life. We pray that we would not simply be hearers, but by your help we would be doers. Lord, as, as Ida asked for her and David, so we ask for ourselves that we would rejoice in the Lord always. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I have to say one of the... It, it's an extraordinary privilege that I have um, in being pastor here at Magdalen Road. And preaching a, a series like this is that individuals come and chat to me, um, kind of out of the blue, and people come and process and, and think through and talk about the sort of things we've been thinking about in Philippians. So over the last few weeks, you will know who you are. Um, a number of people have come and kind of sidled up and let me in, or let me in a bit on what is going on in their lives, what this means for them, where some of these ideas bite. You sort of get past the friendly smiles and, yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks, and nods, and into the reality of the struggles and the pain and the hardships of real life. The clouds that hang over day by day, and so subsequently for them, some of the barriers and battles for rejoicing, what it means to have a struggle for joy in the mess of life. I think it's hard for all of us to a greater or lesser degree, we know something of that struggle, of that reality. In theory, we can talk about putting on joy glasses, and it's a nice idea, and it's quite funny to see Andy with glasses and the kids, but when, we, when it comes down to it, seeing life in terms of what Jesus has done and what he is doing, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Theory is nice. Reality is much harder. What would that thing be for you, that wrestle, that hardship? Maybe it's the thing that you ask God to take away, but he hasn't. Maybe it is the black dog of depression. Maybe the burden of past hurts, the loss of a loved one. Maybe the shame of past experiences or actions or encounters. Maybe gut-wrenching pains of infertility or, or not being married, loneliness. No doubt a whole load of other things. What, what would it be for you? What is that wrestle for you? Maybe it's like a different angle. Maybe it's more, it is the, the bigger scale things, the public atrocities that we were hearing about. The, the bombs in Paris or Beirut or Nigeria or hostages in Mali or whatever it's been for this week and whatever it might be for next week and next month. And we might not say it out loud because we're a bit too polite, but rejoice in that. Really, Paul, joy in them. Did you really mean 4 verse 4? Seriously? 
And so it seems to me at the end of the letter, as we go through the chapter, these final verses, and I've been very struck by this this week, it's, it's as if Paul can see into our minds and he knows what we're thinking and he knows our objections and he begins to deal with some of them. He, he begins to just remove hurdles and barriers to rejoicing for us. And I think what we get basically is two halves to the chapter. In verse 4 to 8, it's a command almost. So 4 verse 4, as we've said, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But then in 9 verse 20, as he's done a number of times in the letter, he, he, he shows us his example. So do you see verse 10? I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. So first half, he tells us, rejoice. Here's the command. Second half, and here's what I did. And here's how I did it. He says, Philippians, I'm not asking you to do something I'm not prepared to do myself. This isn't just do as I say, don't do as I do. No, no, no. Here is how I am able to rejoice, says Paul, second half. But the first half, verse 4 to 8, the rejoice command. Let me read it again, but I want you to notice three key words, three key ideas in those four verses. The key words or the key ideas are verse 5, it's gentleness. Verse 6 is anxiety. And verse 8, kind of thought life. Gentleness, anxiety, thought life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And it's, each time, it's not Paul just telling us, do it, or don't do it. Be gentle, don't be anxious. He gives us the reason why we can be gentle, why we oughtn't be anxious. He's wanting to persuade us. How are these hard asks possible? Well, Paul tells us. See reality in terms of Christ. It's always about Jesus. It's even there in the initial start of verse 4. He doesn't just say, rejoice, chin up, wear the grin, put the mask on. Come on, it's not that bad, really. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And we skip over it when we read it. But it's a very different kind of rejoicing. The problem with opposition and the problem with hardships and the problem with suffering and the problem with problems is they have this annoying way of of overshadowing everything, don't they? And they begin to consume us and shape us and and define us. And all we can see is them, and they seem huge, and he seems tiny. And we end up thinking, how am I meant to rejoice? But here is our struggle. We rejoice in the Lord. We lift our eyes to see reality in terms of Christ. We, We begin to grasp that he overshadows everything. He consumes us. He defines us. He shapes us. He is bigger than whatever is going on. So we can rejoice in him. 
But then Paul goes on to gentleness, verse 5. And a bit of me asks, why? Why, why have we leapt from rejoicing to gentleness? What's going on in Paul's mind? Do you see that? Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. I take it he is preaching gentleness because they are facing opposition. We've seen that week by week. And opposition is a real, tangible, unpleasant, nasty hurdle to joy. And so what does he say to them? He doesn't just say be gentle. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all Next bit, the Lord is near. It's not an incredible truth for brothers and sisters around the world today for, who are facing opposition and hardship and difficulties. Isn't that a truth for us, perhaps, whatever we're going through? That the Lord is near. He says, you are not alone. You might feel isolated and you might feel forgotten and it might feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. You might feel like even though you're in a crowd, you feel lonely. But friends, if that's you this morning, whatever the context, remember the Lord is near. He, he has not left you. He is with you. He is there in the midst of it. Or it might be that, might be that you're facing opposition and, and, and the temptation is to lash out at them, to blow your top and say, the Lord is near, we don't need to retaliate. He has seen it, it's not gone unnoticed. One day he'll come back, one day justice will be served, the Lord is near. So do you see, despite opposition, gentleness, because he is with us and we can leave it to him. And it's, it's gentleness evident you see, to all. It's a community thing. It's an other people thing. It's the opposer will see what he is doing in you. But more than that, we model to each other how to respond in the midst of opposition and hardship. We, we model gentleness and rejoicing as we face difficulties because we know the Lord is near. Gentleness. And if that wasn't challenge enough, Look where he goes next. He talks about anxiety. And anxiety is a huge problem for a people like us in a place like this. Because we live in an anxious age. There was an American book written last year claiming that anxiety in, in a broad definition represents the most common form of officially classified mental illness in the US today. Maybe one in six American adults, it claims, are suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder. There are people in this room who can uh, testify to that or help us with that, see whether that's true. But it's not just Americans. 2009, in the UK, the Mental Health Foundation found 15% of people living in the UK currently suffering from an anxiety disorder with increasing rates. Just over a third of British people saying they feel more and more frightened, more frightened than they used to. Maybe that's you. A quick count. I reckon there's probably 15, 16, 17 people in this room for whom that is an issue. If we're average. Maybe feelings of panic and the dry mouth, the problem sleeping, shortness of breath, heart palpitations and an inability to, to stay calm, to think clearly, to be still. Anxiety is an issue 
for our culture, for our world. Where, where does it come from? Where does anxiety come from? Where does your anxiety come from? Why, as Paul calls on the Philippians to rejoice, does he bring anxiety into the mix of this chapter? And I wonder if it's this, and I'm going to be frank, and then I'm going to explain what I mean, so be patient with me. But I wonder if it's this. I wonder if anxiety is a symptom of misplaced trust. That's the foundation, I think. That is what's going on in the course. So let me read the verses again for us, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we deal with anxiety? In a sense, it's very simple. Paul says we pray. He says, go to the Lord. In fact, Jesus said a very similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In every situation, look away from yourself, look away from your situation, and look to him as your Father in heaven. And present your requests and your prayers and your petitions to him, with thanksgiving even. And he, he can and he will give us a, a peace, a, a supernatural peace beyond comprehension. I know it's the testimony of thousands, millions of Christians from years gone by, and Christians around the world, and Christians in this room as well. problem is, I think the problem is, is so often we're slow to pray and we focus in on self and we forget to go to him. It's the song we're going to sing after the, after the sermon, oh what peace we often forfeit, oh what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We're slow to pray because easily we trust in self because anxiety is a symptom of misplaced trust. Now the reason I say that is because I think that's true for me. I'm not the kind of person to get anxious that often, not in a sort of crippling sense, but I do remember a few times, a few seasons perhaps, I remember one in particular, where I was, I was awake at night, I was unable to sleep, I was short-tempered, I was kind of turning over different options in my head, I was fearful, I was feeling trapped, I was replaying different scenarios and what-ifs. And it was because when it came down to it, I wasn't in control of a situation and I was fearful of failing. And I didn't want others to think badly of me. I was scared of how this situation would reflect on me and my reputation, if I'm honest. That made me very anxious. Maybe for you, anxiety is not about trusting in self and how you're going to look in front of others. Maybe it's trusting in something or someone else. And, and if that thing is removed or taken away or not able to, to be there anymore, then we get angry and despondent and anxious because we were trusting in them or that thing. Maybe it's the kind of trophies that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the sort of things where we take confidence, the things that the children heard in their talk last week. If your confidence comes from your job, then then we're going to struggle when they start making redundancies at work. That will make us anxious. If your confidence comes from, from money and savings and investments, then you're going to start getting twitchy when the economy goes down. House prices fall. If it's confidence from friendships, 
then it's going to hit you hard where there's arguments and discord and disagreements and unresolved issues and you won't be able to leave it because that's where you find your confidence and trust. If it's from stability, if it's from knowing what the future holds and what's going on down the road and down the line, then when there are changes of foot and there's uncertainty and you don't know what's coming up or what's coming around the bend, you're going to find yourself anxious. Or as it was with me, if your confidence can easily come from what people think of you, then when you're not sure what they think of you or you can't control the outcome of a situation or be seen to do a good job, then, then you're going to find yourself anxious. Do you see, anxiety, I think, comes from a misplaced trust. Because we're trusting in self or we're trusting in others or things rather than him. Which is why Paul says, go to him. Verse 7, verse 6. And I think then that leads on to verse 8 and how we think. It is, it's as if Paul can see inside our brains because the problem with anxiety and the problem with stressing about things is our minds and our hearts get fixated on wrong things. I'll say the third hurdle, the third barrier to rejoicing, I think, is in verse 8. Is he's telling us how to think. Finally, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And, and to be honest, verse 8 is interesting. Um, people don't really know what, what Paul is, is quite doing here. That There are some interesting facts about verse 8. One is that a number of the words that he uses are, are only used here in the New Testament. They're commonly used outside the Bible in the literature of the time and the thinking of the people. But in terms of what we have in Scripture, they're only used here. Which means some people think Paul is appealing to the kind of perceived wisdom of the day, the, the age, what virtuous living looks like. We're to consider and be an example for a watching, cynical world. If we, if we focus and think on these things and live these things, then people will see something of the difference that Jesus makes. But I wonder in the context of Philippians, who or, or what is the truly, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy thing or person? It's Christ, isn't it? Maybe particularly 2 verse 5 to 11, the, the hymn in the middle, the heart of the letter. Think about him. He is the one to ponder. And to shape our mindset. He is the one who defines and redefines these things. He is the truly, true, noble, right, pure one. Rejoice in him. Think about him. But of course, lest we say to us, Paul, Paul, this is all fine in, in theory. In practice, I'm not sure what that means or looks like, well, Paul says, follow me. Do, do as I do. Let me, let me let you in on my life so you can see what some of this looks like for me. See how the Lord has taught me to rejoice. So in 4 to 8, we have the rejoice command. 9 to the end, we have the rejoice example. And the example, the case study that he uses is especially to do with the, their generous financial partnership with Paul. 
Maybe he chooses this stuff in part because he's wanting to say thank you, but also because he knows that money and finances and stuff can be such enormous drainers of joy, sucking away our, our rejoicing. So Paul rejoices because of their kindness, verse 10, not that he needs it, he says, per se. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. But again, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary idea for a culture like ours, for a people like us. We, we live in times of incredible discontent. Most companies have a marketing strategy to make you think that you need a certain product by making you feel discontent. How did you fill your life? How did you live your life without whatever it is? Drain blockage material, well, I don't know, whatever. They seek to breed discontent. They get inside your, inside your heads, but your hearts as well, so that you feel an affinity and a warmth with a particular brand or a product. And then you go, buy, they think. But it's interesting for Paul, Paul, this contentment that he talks of in 11 to 13, it, it is not just when he's in need. That's often what we think contentment is about. We think it's, well, when I've not got much, pray that the Lord would help me to be content with this crust of bread or something. But actually, he says he's content when he has plenty as well, which I think is harder, isn't it? whether you've got no food left in the cupboard and how are you going to make ends meet or whether you have cupboards bursting and it's time to give away. Paul is content at either end. The story of the Western church is that we are not content when we have lots. The, the world is confused when it comes to money and contentment and success and stuff. We... We kind of know it's not the answer, but we'd quite like to work that out for ourselves, to see for ourselves really whether having lots of money is not the answer. We live in a confused world. Just some um, quotes I came across thinking about this this week. Oscar Wilde, famously, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I am old, I know that it is. The multi-millionaire John D. Rockefeller famously again, how much money is enough, he was asked. His answer, just a little bit more. Well, Benjamin Franklin, again, interestingly, money has never made man happy, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. We live in a confused age when it comes to money and success and contentment, but have a listen to this from an English Puritan. At Jeremiah Burroughs, it's on the screen now. He says this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Isn't that great? Don't you love that? Isn't that... Isn't that it? Isn't that what we, in our heart of hearts, long for? That's the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about. 
That's how he can rejoice. Because because he knows that kind of contentment. He knows that his father is good and in control. And whether he has cupboards full or cupboards empty, he's content because he has him. And he's enough. But we know our hearts, don't we? You know the reality of your heart that runs after all kinds of things and is never quite content and never quite still. And always wanting more or something else or something different. How, Paul, how can we have this kind of countercultural attitude? How do we do it? I think the answer is verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now usually that, that verse is on t-shirts and, and greetings cards and motivational posters and it's life verses for various people. If you just type, type it into Google Images, you will see some extraordinary examples and painful looking tattoos. But, but I think the translators are, are right to, to put it as they have, to tie it in with the previous verse. To put it into the context of what Paul is saying. It's not a verse in isolation that God can help you achieve your dreams. It's about contentment. It's a verse for us for when we say, I can, I can never be content. My heart is always running after other things. Paul's contentment in any situation, verse 12, comes from the Lord who gives him strength. Verse 13. Do you see? It's not a verse about achieving life goals or being successful or fruitful or prosperous. It's, it's about having contentment in Christ. It's Paul's answer to us when we say we can't do verse 12. That is a prayer, isn't it? That is a prayer for us. Let's pray that we might be content. A personal prayer in the, the midst of whatever it is for you. Whatever the uncertainty, whatever the stress, whether it's stuff or houses or savings or, or relationship or all kinds of things, let's pray that we would be content people. But more than that, as a community together, as a church, let's pray we would be a content people. Maybe in the midst of uncertainty about buildings or, or planting or whatever it might be. As a church family together, let's pray the Lord would make us content. Are people happy with him? Are people who know he is enough? And so let's pray that verse 13 would be true. So with the Lord's help, Paul is content. And yet at the same time, he is thankful for them. As he goes on, verse 14, he is thankful to them for their, their partnership and their generosity. They sh- shared in his troubles they supported him at the start, verse 15, when it was just them. They supported him along the way, verse 16 and verse 17. A key thing for Paul is not that they gave, but that he sees they are spiritually mature and that God is pleased with them. He sees there is genuine fruit because of their generosity. And they've supported him now, verse 18. So he doesn't need the money, but, but he's thankful for the partnership. But then look at how he describes their giving now. Just at the end, you see how he describes it, but what he promises too. See, verse 18, their gifts are, do you see, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the rich of his glory in Christ Jesus. Their giving, verse 18, is part of their worship. He, he uses almost Old Testament sacrificial language. 
our giving is part of our worship. Many churches do take up a financial offering within a service. They pass around a bowl or a plate. It's a way of saying thank you to God very visibly and clearly. We, we don't do that. The danger in not doing that is that we can easily divorce our, our, our giving financially from our worship on Sundays. Maybe we don't give at all. Maybe we give in sort of cold, detached, standing orders that we forget about and never think about. But I'm struck by the fact that how we give is a part of our worship. It's pleasing to God. Money's important. It would be remiss of me to, to not mention the green forms at the back or on the website or the wooden box at the back of the hall on the table. I know for some people the weekly going, a physical habit of putting in money or a check is a really helpful thing because it keeps it tied in to worship. So he describes their giving, verse 18, as fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. But then did you, did you see how, what he promises as well for them? Verse 19. He says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, God will provide what they need. It doesn't mean... We'll always have loads of stuff. Paul's already been the example of that because he's learned to be content with little. But I take it rather he means God's riches in Christ are enough to meet his people's needs and so we can be free to give. It doesn't make sense for us to say we believe God has generously given us his most precious possession, Jesus his son, to deal with our greatest need, forgiveness of sins, but then to doubt his desire or his ability to provide for our needs each day he's he's got it covered he's got us covered it's written to a church remember it's not a necessarily an individualistic thing again it's it's us as a people maybe some of us do have larger salaries and we help those who have smaller salaries at times but it is God providing for our needs through his people of course if if you see contentment and giving and money as the world does, then, then, then financially providing for others is nonsensical. It makes no sense. You mean losing your savings, your security, you're depleting your buffer, taking the filling out of our financial cushions. But Paul says it's okay. It's okay to give. He's got you. He will meet your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray we would be a rejoicing, content church, able to use money well, not hoarding the wealth that he's delegated to us, but rather generously giving, because we trust him. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let's pray we would be a, a church that rejoices in the Lord. A church who is gentle despite opposition because we know that the Lord is near. A church who's not anxious because we've gone to him with thanksgiving and prayer and petition. And we have a peace from him. A, a church who, who thinks on Christ. And whom, like Paul, are able to rejoice because we trust him, because he's taught us contentment, because... 
because we know the riches of his generosity for us and so we can be a people who just give it away. Give it away, it's his anyway. Let's give generously because he's given generously to us. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please lay on each of our hearts and on our heart as a whole as well truths from this passage for us. We long that we would be a people who rejoice, who are gentle despite opposition, who are anxious despite hardships, people who think on Christ. We pray that we might be like Paul in in learning contentment from you. Contentment that means we are happy whether we have cupboards full or cupboards empty because we have Christ. And so help us please to use the money that you entrust to us well. Thank you that you are the one who richly provides. We pray that we might actually believe that rather than simply reading it. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.